Let us pray. Gracious Father, thank you for, uh, for Rally Day, for this church, for the chance to, uh, to kind of be stupid in the skit. Um, we do pray that it has some uh, redeeming value, Lord, that you would speak and, uh, and that we would have uh, ears to hear. Now we do ask that you would be with us in, uh, in these minutes. Now as we turn our eyes towards, towards you, to your apostle uh, and evangelist John, and uh, also, Lord, we ask the Holy Spirit would illuminate and make known to us parts of ourselves so that we would see ourselves and therefore our need of you uh, more clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. So your own personal Jesus, just talking to Shannon, of course, you know, put it out there. The obvious reference is Depeche Mode. Um, uh, how did it, you know, some of y'all are going to know this more than me, Shannon, you might. Um, the lead singer for Depeche Mode, I can't remember, or he may, I think he's the guitarist. He's also the songwriter for Depeche Mode, and he came up with the phrase as near as I can tell. He read a book by, maybe either by Priscilla Presley or it was about Priscilla Presley, um, I think it was about Priscilla Presley, and she described her relationship with Elvis, uh, that Elvis had kind of become her personal Jesus, um, that, and the one whom she had hope and from whom she sought care, and hence the, you know, someone to care, the, the thump of the song and all that. And he put this interesting comment on the end of all that. He said, it's kind of a, uh, I can't remember his exact phrase, it's on Wikipedia, um, it's kind of a sad way to live, if you think about it, is what the guy from Depeche Mode said. And so, your own personal Jesus, trying to bring that in, this, the, the overarching part of the, the series, the five-week series that we're starting here. Going to use the first five chapters of John to, to use that. What I hope to do each week is to take a part of it um, at the very beginning, to ask what is our sort of orienting principle, our operating system, so to speak, around which our lives are built. Um, AA would call it the lens or the glasses that through which you see the world. What is that? Um, how do you see the world? What is it that is your, um, in, uh, in, 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 in counseling, it be called your core beliefs. Um, what is it that makes you you, sort of your soul's identity, the thing uh, which... You have your hopes and dreams resting on, um, to quote um, Phillips Brooks' hymn. Um, uh, what, what is that? We're going to try to beg that question each week. Because then I think if we go from that, then we, we could properly, and I'm going to restate all this in a minute, we could properly, in theological language, in Advent speak, call that our law, capital L. What's our law? That's our law. Um, it's always evaluating. It's always on. It's never turned off. It's always there. Uh, it's always speaking. It's always infusing us with a certain power. And then from that, we know what kind of salvation we're looking for. Um, uh, we all want to be delivered from something, someone to care, you know, someone to pick up the phone and let us know that, yeah, I'm right there. You know, but uh, that may be your own personal Jesus, and it may not be the actual Jesus. And so that's what we're going to try to bring out is that collision you know, what's my law? What's my orienting principle? What's my operating system? What's my, what are the glasses through which I see the world? Where are my great dreams? Where are my hopes? Where are my fears? Um, trying to bring all that out. Uh, that's going to tell us what kind of Jesus, so to speak, we need. What kind of salvation we need. Uh, what's my point A? And I'm praying for some deliverance to point B. Uh, and then having that sort of right on top, um, hopefully by the Holy Spirit's guidance, we'll have that collide with the actual Lord. Um, so that's the idea. That's the idea of the clash. Your own personal Jesus, 
which is a nice way to look at the first five chapters of John. So let's start there. Um, This isn't all of John 1, uh, but I'm going to take some liberty and just bounce around um, the first parts of John 1. And then we'll go in and we're going to reread John 1. But I thought we don't start. I thought it'd be good to start here. So from John 1, <coughs> and you've heard I teach on this lots. And so if you come to a lot of the classes that I lead, you've certainly heard me read this part before. It's uh, what's called John's prologue. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from this fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at his Father's side, he has made him known. And then he goes on in a short discourse on John the Baptist. Um, he says, And the next day John, uh, John the Baptist, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, coming toward him, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the next day again John was standing with two of his disciples. Uh, and he said, uh, And the next day again John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And then the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to them, Follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth. And Philip said to him, come and see. So we're going to go back to that. Um, did want to sort of put that out there. That's going to be the text through which we, or to which we work, I guess we should say. Um, uh, sort of restate. Um, we all have something. Hoping to bring this up a little bit. We all have something. Uh, or maybe even a few somethings. But I don't think it's many. I really think... Uh, it's one, maybe three, three things, three some things that we really, uh, that have us wrapped, that are active, that are the living word, so to speak, and they're always speaking to us and are informing us and are, uh, in, a, in, a, in a real way, in this time, making us, in a significant way, who we are. The identity question. Um, this word, this context around which our lives are built, um, I said earlier, our, our operating system. That's just one way I thought of trying to describe it as I was thinking about this on Friday. You know, the, uh, the thing which our computer, so to speak, our processor, the way that we process the world, the way that we take in data and we turn it around and we form meaning and we form uh, uh, conclusions, we make decisions, through which our feelings and our emotions are formed, our behaviors are then connected. All that is taken in, you know, through our senses, through our intuition, all that stuff. So whatever you want to put on that, that comes in. We have an operating system. We have a processor. We have a lens, as I said earlier, 
through which we see all things. I said AA really uses that. You know, one of the great books in the AA literature is called A New Pair of Glasses uh, because the old pair of glasses was seen through the realm of the addiction. And the addiction, you know, say to alcohol, for the alcoholic, that was the lens through which they saw the world, where everything they wanted uh, or everything they felt, thought, experienced, every behavior, every relationship, every, every minute spent at work, um, driving in the car, all of it was seen so AA would say, and I, I tend to agree, uh, is ultimately processed, is then sort of you know, brought in and churned around in a certain way so that the, the, uh, the addict, the alcoholic, would ultimately get their, their booze, their, their substance, the thing that they needed. Their operating system was always on and it was always leading. If it was in two hours, if it was in two minutes, if it was in two weeks, they were planning at an unconscious level for what's next. How am I going to get that? You know, on the business trip or when I get home and when the kids go to bed or whatever it is it was going through. That was the glasses through which they see everything. And so it's, you know, to invite us all to begin to think about that. What is it? What is it for you? What is it for me? What is our lens? What is our operating system? How do we see the world and process it? How does it come to us? Um, how, what, what is it that uh, fragments reality and then begins to get re-pieced in myself in order to meet that law? Um, what is it uh, about you, um, just as I'm asking that same question about me, that is there. Our fears are certainly a part of that. Um, our hopes, our dreams. Um, obvious place to look would be our children, our work. Um, could be a substance, an addiction. Um, could be a process, a behavior. Could be something that happened when you were a child. Um, something wonderful, something awful. You know, a terrible event of abuse. Something that happened one night in college and everything changed around that and it is clouded. It has been the lens through which the rest of your life Ultimately, not day to day, I mean, I'm not talking about every single minute, but in the moments where there's some clarity, when you get shaken out of it, and you see things, you begin to see things as they are actually, it's what is always there and always at work. Uh, and to say, take our children, for instance, it's one thing to say that, you know, my, my children, my child is my operating system. You know, I would do anything for them, and I see, my, I see the world through, through them. Um, and that may be true, uh, but to go down a little bit further, there's usually a fear attached to that. Why is your child so, so consuming to you? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that one day they're going to leave you and forget you? Or maybe it's the opposite, when they, you're afraid they're never going to leave you. <laughs> um, it's more and more the case. Uh, and I think ultimately, you know, to use that as an example, it comes back to me. You know, it comes back to you, some sense that I'm a failure. And if then a conditionality begins to be attached to it, and this is what I'm trying to invite us to begin to think of, if I do this, then this is going to happen. Or if I don't do this, then this isn't going to happen. And it comes back to me. What if something I did to one of my girls uh, is my fault and it affects them forever? What if just as a thing that happened to me when I was 24 has now affected my life forever? Or the pursuit of... Uh, in John Harper's language, the three P's. You know, great, great piece here. Power, prestige, or position. Um, uh, the pursuit of those things. Is that your operating system? 
Is that it? Um, Howard Hughes it was. How much is enough, Mr. Hughes? And maniacally looked back, just a little bit more. How much power? How much prestige? How much position? How much money? How much advancement is enough? Just a little bit more. And this, this, this tyrannical condition of, if I get there, then... And of course, when you get there, what happens? You make the top of the, the mountain, and there's another mountain that you didn't see before. And you climb it again, and you climb it again, and it never stops. Um, so what would this be? And how does this turn back to us, where it's somehow always my fault, it's up to me to make this work um, some way or another, it, it moves back. It could be an illness um, for you or somebody that you live with or somebody that you love. Physical illness, a mental illness, um, almost by definition, someone who's hurt or wounded or ill or sick, almost by definition, they're, they're, they're rabidly self-interested. They're very selfish. I am very selfish because when I hurt, that's all I see. That's my operating system. That's my lens. Until I get relief from that pain, whatever it is, um, it's all I can see. Everything gets clouded by that. Everything gets attached to it. So what is this? What is this operating system? What is this uh, processor, this, this lens through which everything is seen, this, this part of you that, uh, that clouds everything? One no less than a niece nin, certainly no Christian, but she said something once. How did she say it? Um, we do not see things as they are actually, but we see things as I want to see them. She's right. She's 100% right. Um, uh, we don't see things as they really are. We see things as I want to see them. And there's a ton of research, if you want to read that and kind of go that route. I mean, that's not a, that's not a, a theological, even a sociological statement. You could say that's just empirically verifiable. Um, all sorts of social science data experiments, some of which are really cool. Read Dan Arely's book, for instance, Predictably Irrational. Um, great way to see that, that we look at a line on the screen, and we say, I swear those are the same length, and you slide them over, and of course they're not. And so behavioral economics is born from that, where if we can not see things as they are actually, but the way I want to see them, well, the market, <laughs> which is terribly efficient, has a way to exploit that for gain. And so is that it? Is that what it is for you? How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Something which is clouding the way I see things. So I don't see things as they are actually, but as I want to see them. And we might even, just thinking of all these little peppers, um, I think it was 1984, Orwell's book, where, help me here, this may not be it, no, I'm at risk of a digression. The machine it finally turned off. I can't remember what the machine is. And then when they realized that the machine turned off, they looked up the machine. It hums. I never knew it hummed. It was always on until it was finally silenced, until it finally met its end. And then that silence was deafening. And when you look at a reference point in arrears, he looked back and said, how did we never know that the hum was always in our life, that it was always present? It's like, um, well, in our offices here, our air conditioner is always moving. As I meet with people, it's actually really it's helpful because it kind of puts this sort of background noise, uh, which can be really, you know, nice. And then sometimes it goes off, and I swear it is like we're yelling at each other and we're whispering. <laughs> it is like, this is so quiet. Mm -hmm. You don't realize it until it's ended. 
until Christ becomes the end of the law, you don't realize, it's from Romans 10, you don't realize how incessant the law has been, that it's always been on, that it's never stopped, and it's always accusing. Um, hit pause here in just a minute so y'all can feed back. But that's where, uh, restate that one more time. There's even that neat little Latin phrase, lex semper accusat, the law always accuses. What does that mean? It's always there, and it's always on, and it's always active. It's always there. There can't not not be a law. There can't not not, as a result of, of, uh, of the fall, and Nice Nin, one no less than her, saw it as that is actually, that we don't see things as they are. You know, my, my, my sight, my, my touch, my, my, my ears, they're not trustworthy, which is why the Lord kept going back. They that have eyes to see and ears to hear, let them see and hear, because he knew that what I see and what I hear, and then as I begin to process it, I begin to put it together in the way that it would fit me. And in what more specific than that? In a way that it would fit my my personal Jesus. In a way that would fit what I think I need rather than what I actually need. So the law is always on. It's always accusing. What does accusing mean? For some people, it's just that little tape in the back of the head. You're never enough. You're always wrong. You always got this. You never do this. And it's always and never. And it's always and never. And it's always and never. It's a lot of us. But for others, it's not quite so explicit. It could be something a little bit less. But it's always there. It's still always on. There's always, by virtue of it being a law, an evaluative property. It's always evaluating. It's always trying to... Um, sorry, I just... I had to say this with Robin Williams. Uh, anybody else see the HBO show like in 1984? I always remember this. This is for my brother because uh, we would watch this at a way too young of an age. <laughs> and he was up there probably coked up and, uh, and, a, and a fire truck went by and he was just in the middle of his stand-up routine. He was like, oh, there goes my ride. <laughs> and I just always thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and 30 years later, I still do, and there goes the fire truck. And I would say, oh, there goes my ride. <laughs> um, so the law... Robin Williams, is always on, and it's always accusing. Um, sometimes the accusation is more veiled. It's a little bit more subtle. Um, but there's always an evaluation, always a judgment, always something, always a reference point, let's put it that way, by which I'm comparing. What's your law? What's your operating system? Because then your reference point is that. How am I being compared to my advancement at my office? Or... My role as a father, my role as a husband, how am I doing, um, you know, on the Bible in a year blog, am I really going to take that on again? Um, you know, how am I doing, how am I doing, how am I doing? And all that begins to come up. And, uh, and in fact, we can't actually, I'll go there later. We can't tolerate it, and so we have to do something with it. But we'll do that later. So what about you? Which law are you under? What operating system is always active? What lenses we wear, we didn't even realize it. What machine is always humming and that we don't even know it until somehow it's silenced? What would fill in the blank? Um, if I could only blank. If I only had blank. If only this would happen or if only that wouldn't, then blank. That'd be a lead. You know, what is it that proverbially, as you, if you were woken up at two in the morning and you gave an answer to one of those questions. That's the beginning of a lead to what your law is. Then, 
Why do we spend so much time trying to get that clear? Because then we know what kind of salvation we think we need. And it may be true. But we're certainly now turning Jesus into that sort of deliverer. And that could be at a macro scale. If I believe that, that society's ills have to do with education, you know, like Ben Franklin or something like that, then who is Jesus? Jesus is the great educator. He's wise and he's a good teacher. If, uh, if you're sick, if you've got a physical malady, um, Jesus is the great healer. And you can really create, you know, where almost to the exclusion of other things, where he's just that. Um, if society's ills have to do with um, uh, something political, um, then he could become the great liberator. You know, that's what liberation theology was born from. You know, so that that uh, the proletariat or the uh, the poor the could could be could be freed. And so Jesus was carried. A, he carries a carbine. You know, that was um, very present in uh, in Castro's reign, for instance. There'd be images of Jesus as a warrior, as a liberator, carrying a carbine. Um, could work at a macro level. Could work at a micro level, where Jesus is. The one who, if you're overwrought with your schedule, who isn't? I mean, how you doing? I'm busy. I'm so busy. Jesus is what? He brings balance. If Jesus would only bring in my life, and that's what you pray for, and that becomes your Jesus, your personal Jesus, the one who gives me care, the one who gives me balance, the one who's on the other side of the phone saying, take a break. You need it. You know, don't worry. Now, is that true? It's half true. It's half true, but that's not Jesus. He didn't die so that I have a balance in my life. That's not his atonement. It's more than that. So let me hit pause. What's your, uh, what's your lens, your operating system, your law? And then who's your, um, who's your Jesus? Your personal Jesus. <laughs> any thoughts? Not asking that. I don't want to. Mine is this. I'm not asking for that. But any comments or questions? Yeah. Sure. You know, obviously, what might have driven me, what was my own question of Jesus when I was, I don't know, 15 is sure. different than what is today. Clearly, clearly. Okay. Yeah, can morph. Thank you. I'm glad you brought that up. An absolute can morph. You know, almost certainly that Jesus, when you're 15, is one thing. He's the, he's the girl bringer. <laughs> <laughs> if only I could have her, you know. Um, you know, that's only half. Not, that's, not even, that's not even a stretch for most of us who were 15 at one point who were boys. Um, and then it becomes something else. So it can absolutely be that. But to go all the way back, and this is heavy, um, it sometimes is, sometimes life does go in and out of a single event, um, of a single loss, of a single pain, of a period of suffering, or a single relationship. There's a singularity that then remains, you know, the scar, the wound, for the rest of your days. So it can be that, and at the same time, something else. So, I mean, yeah, it can absolutely morph, but, but sometimes it's, it's one thing. Any other thoughts? Look at a clip. Your next mountain. Yeah. Yeah. 
you move on, and you take your next, my next Jesus, my next law, my next project, my next self, my next whatever. That really wasn't it. Then it's Turkish delight, as C.S. Lewis would say in, in Narnia. It's like, was that real? I mean, cotton candy. It's like, there was nothing, there was no there there. Um, and you're left empty. And of course, there's thousands who've been burnt by the church because there was no there there. Now, it's easy for me to throw that stone. Um, but I do think that's true. I'm going to do a clip. It's five minutes. Um, remember the last temptation of Christ? Martin Scorsese was banned in all the theaters, so if you saw it, you only saw it on DVD. Well, now it's, of course, I wouldn't say it's tame, um, but it would not be banned if it was released now. Um, in the late 80s, it was certainly banned. Um, uh, it was a, a novel long before it was a movie. Um, William Defoe's Jesus, we're going to see a clip between he and Paul, um, which is, of course, is anachronistic. Uh, uh, not unlike Jesus and Arendelle, but that's okay. Um, fraught with heresy. I mean, it's not even. I'm not even going to try to approach that. Um, so many heresies. Um, docetism would be the big one. Where, if you remember the story, uh, Jesus is sort of resisting his label as Son of God. Um, he wants to say, "I'm a man," and he gets tempted by the devil. Uh, Satan in the wilderness right after his baptism. It's an adoptionistic heresy that he was just sort of a, a good man and God sort of said, I'll take him and make him my Christ. He wasn't born like John 1. That's going to be what we go back to. A pre-existent where before all things God was and so was Jesus and so was the Spirit. The Spirit of God hovered over the water and in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and he was with God without whom nothing, without whom nothing uh, was made that had been made. Um, well, Nico Kazantzakis, I think is his name, the, the novelist who wrote this probably in, I'm going to guess, 1880, maybe 19, might have been the early 20th century. Um, he was certainly in a melu. He had lenses, theological lenses, where he wanted to, like so many others, uh, you know, separate the historical Jesus, the Jesus of history, from the Christ of faith. And, uh, and that was the zeitgeist for like a hundred years. In fact, anybody else go to Suwannee? About my age, my, we all, thank you. Then you're required to take religion at Swanee, religion 111. Um, and there was a guy there, we read Paul Tillich, and it was, Paul Tillich was a disciple of, uh, what was his name, Martin Kaler. You don't need to know all this. And he's the one who came up with that phrase, the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith. Are y'all still reading that in religion 111? I hope not. So, Paul Tillich, so you are? That's too bad. Anyway, Paul Tillich. Who has a lot of care, a lot of good things, but but he was wrapped up in this, like a lot of others. And so the point of this little clip is going to end up where Paul is preaching, and Jesus, who has been tempted, the last temptation of Christ was to be tempted. He was tempted while he was on the cross, and he says, "My God, my God, how could you forsaken me?" And this little girl shows up on the scene, and the little girl who Jesus takes to be his guardian angel says, "No." Your father has heard you, and he wants you now to come off. You don't have to worry about this. Um, no, I'm supposed to be here. No, no, no. He, he just heard your cry, and he just wanted to see that you would follow through. Kind of like Abraham and Isaac. Just, have you gotten, were you willing to do it? That's all he wanted to see. Of course, he wouldn't, he wouldn't make you go through with this. And so she takes him off the cross. And Jesus, quote, got to live a normal life. A life as a man, and so he marries Mary. 
Mary Magdalene. Um, and the, that was the great controversy because there's a sex scene between Christ and, and Mary Magdalene. Um, totally fictitious. Um, uh, and he lives a normal life. He has children. He, he, he goes through life as a man. And then he, as he's doing all that, he's walking around and he hears the Apostle Paul preaching. And that's the scene we're about to pick up. So it's anachronistic because Jesus got to live, quote, a normal life like you and me and everybody else. And he hears the Apostle Paul preaching, and they have this confrontation. And Paul ends up saying, I'm glad I met you, because now I can forget about you, because I don't need you. Um, What these people need is not the actual Jesus, but the Christ of faith. They need the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. They don't really care who or what you actually were. They just need an idea. And that was hot. It's still hot still hot for a lot of people, that Christ's humanity, um, at the expense of his divinity, so to speak, really isn't that important. Um, and, uh, and John 1 is going to have a lot to say about that. This is just one way, theologically, and this has formed a lot of people, and it's completely wrong, and it hurts a lot of people, um, this idea that we see in the last temptation of Christ. So we're going to look at this, and then uh, maybe look at some Eisenheim and go from there. Remember this movie? You might have seen it recently for any reason. Cheated, um, I gambled, this is Paul. I drank, and persecuted, tortured, and murdered. Yes, murdered! I killed anyone who broke the law of Moses, and I loved it. I enjoyed it. I relished it. I reveled in it. Because I thought I was doing God's will. I thought I was doing God's will. And the high priest of Jerusalem sent me to the city of Damascus to discourage that city. And on the road to Damascus, just outside the city, in the middle of the day, I was struck by a white light that blinded me. Yes. And I heard a voice say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you against me? Who are you, I said. And the voice said, Jesus. And he made me see. I was led helpless like a child into a city that I was set to scourge. And God sent me Ananias instead. And he put his hands on me. And I opened my eyes. And I was baptized and became Paul. And now I bring the good news to you. It's about Jesus of Nazareth. He was not the son of Mary. That's his guardian angel, so to speak. That's obviously Jesus. His mother was a virgin. Or William Defoe. And the angel Gabriel came down and put God's seed in her womb. That's how he was born. And he was punished for our sins. Our sins. Then he was tortured and crucified. But three days later, he rose up from the dead and went up to heaven. Death was conquered. Amen. Do you understand what that means? He conquered death. All our sins were forgiven, and now the world of God is open to every one of us, to everybody. Did you ever see this Jesus of Nazareth after he came back from the dead? I mean with your own eyes. No, but I saw a light that blinded me, and I heard his voice. Liar. The disciples saw him. They were hiding in an attic, but the door was locked. And he appeared to them. Liar. He's a liar. 
Paul, you... I was never crucified. I never came back from the dead. I'm a man like everybody else. Why, uh... Why are you telling these lies? What are you talking about? I'm the son of Mary and Joseph. I'm the one who preached in Galilee. I had followers. We marched on Jerusalem. Pilate condemned me, and God saved me. No, he didn't. Who are you talking about? Don't try and tell me what happened to me, because I know. I live like a man now. I work, eat, have children. I enjoy my life. For the first time, I'm enjoying it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So don't go around telling lies about me, or I'll tell everybody the truth. It's just a minute. What's the matter with you? Look around you. Look at all these people. Look at their faces. Do you see how unhappy they are? Do you see how much they're suffering? Their only hope is the resurrected Jesus. I don't care whether you're Jesus or not. The resurrected Jesus will save the world, and that's what matters. Those are lies. You can't save the world by lying. I created the truth out of what people needed and what they believed. If I have to crucify you to save the world, then I'll crucify you. And if I have to resurrect you, then I'll do that too, whether you like it or not. I won't let you. I'll tell everyone the truth. <laughs> Go ahead. Tell them now. So, sweeps this whole realm of theology that, um, thank you, uh, my Jesus is much more important, much more powerful, that, that the Christ of faith was a creation of Paul, and all this, you know, that's a, sort of the capstone of 20th century, sort of biblical <coughs> scholarship in some ways, um, which uh, finally is kind of you know, unraveling a good bit right now, which is which is good news because that's uh, completely false. Um, let me read again, John one. Put that behind or in mind because there's a confrontation, confrontation behind this kind of idea. My Jesus is much more important than you. Uh, and then this is Matthias Grunewald's. Grunewald's. Um, I've shown this several times. It's uh, uh, what's called the Eisenheim altarpiece. Um, in a church in Eisenheim, northern France, near Alsace, I think, was uh, like 1512, 1516, uh, Catholic artist uh, painted for a monastery. Back then, they didn't have hospitals per se. Monasteries is where a lot of times the monks were given to care for the, the sick <coughs> and the wounded, and this one had a particular ministry for um, uh, people with one of the plagues and various skin diseases like leprosy and many other things that would go there to die. And this is a very graphic image where the, that Christ has a lot of the, the skin lesions that would be very familiar to those, those, uh, those people who were dying there in, uh, in Eisenheim. And this is John the Baptist over there on the, 
on on Christ's left with the long bony finger, as it's called, uh, pointing, uh, again, anachronistically, to the Christ, that saying, I must decrease so that he may increase. And we'll read that when we read John 3 in two weeks. Uh, but the Lamb of God down there in the lower, I've got some details. Um, here's John. I must decrease so that he may increase. That's the Latin with the, uh, the, the long finger. Karl Barth, who's one of Martin um, Gillette's heroes, had this right above his, uh, his little desk, evidently, as he was writing his, his uh, church dogmatics. Um, the long bony finger, as he called it. And here's the, the portrait of the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, um, with the crozier, the small cross, and of course the blood coming out of his breast into the chalice. This is my blood shed for you. Um, uh, keep that in mind, and we think of these questions. Um, visually, with the last temptation of Christ, try to put one thing out there. My personal Jesus, the Jesus of Paul, which wasn't the actual Jesus, so says some, uh, you know, your personal Jesus, my personal Jesus, letting that collide with the actual Christ. Enri, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. Uh, Jesus Nazareth, um, King of the Jews, Rex, uh, uh, Jews. Um, uh, Keeping this in mind as we hear John 1, one more time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're about to move to the incarnation passage where it says, um, and the word became flesh and dwells among us and that no one has ever seen God but, but the, the Son of God. God, the only one. It's a really hard one to translate. Uh, he has seen God and now he is making him known. God is revealing himself to us as he actually is. Remember, we don't see things as they actually are. We see things as we want to see them. And now that is being collided. That is colliding straight away with the actual crucified Christ. Uh, three questions, normal questions when you meet somebody. What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? You can hear that. What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? As we listen again to John 1. What's your name? Beginning was the word. Where are you from? I was with God in the beginning. What do you do? Behold, the Lamb of God what does he do? Who takes away the sin of the world. Who you know, gives us, again, the A book, a new pair of glasses, a new operating system, a new way to process everything, which all goes into the core of who I am. Who am I? This new, uh, new way of seeing everything. Freedom. Freedom from that law. When the machine ends, it hums. And Christ is the end of the law. He brings it about so that we actually see things truly. Who am I? Who is God? And what has he done? So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, and the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, John is writing this, and he was certainly there at the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and, uh, uh, and James, uh, where he beheld the glory of God, where, God, where, 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 where Christ was revealed, uh, as it were, um, through a mirror dimly, for who he actually is. Uh, we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus of Nazareth, who is at his Father's side, he has made him known. And this is how he does it. Um, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the next day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And then the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and he said to him, Follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. To come and see. To behold, nothing and no one among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Um, and that's, the, uh, that's where we're headed. Next four weeks, continuing to lean into the first five chapters of John, asking ourselves this, this very central question. It's a lot of repetition. Just who am I? What's my law? How do I see the world? And how are things actually? Uh, who is Christ actually? Not my personal Jesus, uh, but the one who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, and not the world only, but my sins, uh, who frees me. Questions or comments before we wrap up? Let us pray. Father, um, take, these, uh, take this time and make it yours. Remain at work in such a way that this would be your work done in your way, never lacking, Lord, for anything needed. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear things truly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. See you all next week.